Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we're going to uh, pick up with verse 21 and we're going to continue through verse 28. You know, we spend our whole lives learning. We, we learn in many different ways. Uh, we have many different motivations by which we learn. Sometimes we learn something because we're curious. We're interested. So we go to find the answer for that thing. We, we look at the sky one day and we say, why is the sky blue? And then we go and we pursue the answer to that question. Uh, we find the answer because we're interested in the question. Sometimes we've learned because we found from experience that there are certain things in our lives that we need that are important to us. When I was younger, I, I learned how to change a tire because I recognized that that was a skill that, that would become important to me, that it's something that would be good to know, that I would need to know for the future. So I was motivated by uh, my understanding, the, the, the recognition of my need to learn. Regardless of our motivation for learning, however, I think we'd all agree that learning is something that is easier when we feel we have a reason, when we feel as though we are indeed uh, motivated to do it. I know when I was in um, college and in seminary, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was that there is a an inherent motivation, that it's, it can be so much more difficult to learn, even though I enjoy learning, when there's no motivation, something behind you, the threat of a bad grade, whatever it is, to get you going. If I were to take a poll, I'm confident that uh, somewhere along the line, just about everyone in this room would have thought, uh, would have either run across their mind or they'd heard someone else say in regard to mathematics, why do I need this? I'm never going to use it. I used to hear it all the time in my classes. Why do we even need to learn this anyway? We're never going to use it. And it's true in some senses. I can't think of uh, the, the whole lot of times that I've used calculus since um, learning it. I, I've done uh, quite a bit of geometry and trigonometry in my time. But, but there are certain things that, yes, it seems as though uh, inherently I have not used that particular skill. However... There was a day when, as I was learning all of these things, and again, it was in college and many of my computer classes, that I realized that my understanding of mathematics and my work in mathematics brought about in my mind the means by which to make methodical problem solving and to bring about the sequential thought processes and logic that I have found invaluable well outside of the realm of calculus, well outside of the realm of mathematics. Whether you're an astrophysicist or you're a stay-at-home mom, you need to know logic and sequential, thoughtful reasoning. And this is what mathematics provides. Perhaps if we had thought at that age... Um, how much we would use it, or if we had known at the age of our math classes, how much we would use the skills that we learned, even if we're not using the math, it would have been a little bit easier for us to do. See, because when we learn, motivation makes a big difference. And as we step back into 1 Corinthians 15 today, having spent much time there, uh, this is one of those realms where Paul has helped us. An advantage that we have, because as we step into the doctrine of the resurrection today, we are going to do so with the foundation that we laid last week, 
being that Paul has already given us the importance of the resurrection. So he presented to us, recall last week, the importance of the resurrection, why it is so important, uh, the, the doctrine of the resurrection or that, that there is a resurrection of the dead is so important. And now that he's established that, yes, this is important. Now he says, let me tell you what the doctrine of the resurrection is. Let's, let's dig in a little bit deeper into this understanding. So it's my hope and my desire today that you having now learned last week, how important this is, that it will give you an extra level of motivation to listen closely today, uh, to take these things home with you and dig a little bit deeper into them in order that you can fully understand the implications and the teaching that that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we talk about the importance of the resurrection, I'd like to lay a bit of, uh, or, or not the importance, uh, the doctrine of the resurrection, I'd like us to lay a little bit more foundation. And, and this begins all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Perhaps you know the story in some form. On the sixth day, God creates man, calls his name Adam. The scriptures tell us that God places Adam in a garden called Eden. This is found in Genesis 2. And the scriptures tell us that God gave Adam several responsibilities. First and foremost of his responsibilities was to care for the Garden of Eden. Second, God told Adam that uh, he had the responsibility of not eating of one particular tree in the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could eat off of any other tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was not allowed to eat. And God warned him that the day that he eats of it, verse 17 of Genesis 2, he would surely die. And then God also asked him finally to name all of the animals. Scriptures tell us in verse 19 of Genesis 2 that God brought the animals to him one by one and he gave them each a name. But then we learn that there was no companion for Adam. He named all the animals, but there was no companion for him. So the Lord, the scriptures tell us that the Lord made for Adam, forming out of him woman, a companion, a helpmeet for him. And so now Adam has a helpmeet named woman. Adam is tending the garden and bearing the responsibility of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil according to the expectation of God. Well, in Genesis 3, something terrible happens. A serpent in the garden speaks to the woman, her name being Eve, and he questions God's commands. He questions God's truthfulness. He questions God's goodness. He claims that God was lying to Adam when God said that when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Rather, he said, when they eat of that tree, 
they would become like gods, knowing good and evil. He claimed that God was being selfish, that God was being unkind, mean, that God was withholding from Adam and by proxy Eve something good, that, that God knew that there was something good uh, that, that they could take advantage of and he was purposefully hiding it from them. Sounds very similar to what we think, what our flesh, what uh, our temptations try to remind us or try to, try to convince us of today when we look at sin. Through this line of questioning, the serpent deceived the woman into eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she gave to her husband Adam, and the scriptures tell us he ate as well. Eve being deceived, Adam not being deceived, but rather being rebellious. And when Adam did this terrible thing, when he stepped into this terrible sin, when he disobeyed the direct command of his Creator and his God, just as God promised, he and his wife died. Now, certainly they continued breathing, they continued walking, they continued talking, but their spirits, that immortal part of the man, which can know and can communicate with God, which had lived prior in holiness and innocence in the presence of God, at that moment, that spirit fell away from God, died, became spiritually dead, was separated from fellowship with God. In other words, on that day they did in fact die. Spiritual death and separation from God. A death and a separation that they had never known to that point. And on that day, the Scriptures tell us it was not just Adam and Eve that died, but all who would be born to them. The entire human race would now be born naturally separated from God, naturally having a sin nature. In its natural state, we would have a nature that is purposefully and willfully rebellious toward God. That's what it means that we are born sinners. It doesn't mean that, that we come out of the womb um, and uh, we, we have committed knowing obvious acts against God. Uh, we, we don't have, a, a baby does not have that capacity to knowingly understand God's commands and, and rebel against them. But, but much rather, the baby does come out of the womb with a sin nature with the not just the capacity, but the propensity, the desire to exercise his or her will against its creator. Leading that child to the inevitable day, the inevitable day when each child will, knowing what the, their creator expects of them, willfully rebel against him. And so we do say we are born sinners because we are born spiritually dead, because we are born out of fellowship with God, because we are born with a sin nature, naturally selfish, naturally rebellious, uh, inherently opposed to the will of the one who has created us. And you know, sin always has consequences. And the consequence that God has decreed for rebellious mankind is that when they die physically, they would go to a place of torment and a place of eternal fire, a place called hell, and then eventually the lake of fire. 
and this being the just and natural consequence of their rebellion against God. Yes, you have a propensity to sin because of your sin nature, but it's still your choice. It is what you want to do. It is what you have chosen to do. And God judges likewise. But you know, it's not all bad news. We are indeed on our way to a sinner's hell in our natural state, but God still loves men. So he sent his son, his name being Jesus Christ, to undo what Adam did. To reverse what Adam did. And this is where the doctrine of the resurrection comes in. Would you look with me in 1 Corinthians 15? We'll begin in verse 21. We'll read through verse 28. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. As we look at this passage this morning, beginning in verse 21, uh, we, we see verse 21 beginning uh, um, by showing us the natural order of things. It was man who ushered into this world sin. And thus, as he ushered into this world sin, so too he ushered into this world death. For since by man came death. Now, as it was a man who brought sin into this world... It must thus be, in God's justice and God's expectation, a man who would then defeat sin. A man who would have the capacity to overcome the sin, the death, the spiritual death, the physical death, the separation from God. But the problem is this is impossible. This is impossible. A man dies. How can a man possibly defeat death? How can a man possibly help Others defeat their own sinfulness when men are themselves sinful. I'm too busy dealing with my own sin to try to help you deal with your sin on a, on a salvific level, uh, we would say, in a man's perspective. That's, of course, not how it works biblically. We'll talk about that in a moment. But how can a man who has his own sin issues deal with help others in their sin? And Jesus said in Matthew 19.26 this, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Within that context, Jesus was speaking specifically of the difficulty of, of rich men coming into the kingdom of heaven. His disciples saying, Who then can be saved? To which Jesus made that remark, that with God all things are indeed possible. 
So we see the order of things. By man came death. And so thus by man must come and did come the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22 continues this idea. Paul reveals the plan that in Adam all died. So in Christ, God's Messiah, the one who would come, all shall be made alive. In one man, the first Adam, all died. All received a sin nature. All were separated from God. All were placed on this path toward rebellion and thus hell. In another man, the last Adam, the one who is named Jesus Christ, all were given the privilege of life. Now, we need to take a moment here and understand what this verse is not saying and what it is saying. What it cannot be saying is this. It cannot be saying that everybody is now on their way to heaven. One of the key elements of biblical interpretation is that we always allow specific statements to clarify general ones in the scripture. That means this cannot mean that because Jesus died, everyone in the world is going to heaven. Jesus said in Matthew seven fourteen, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There are few, Jesus said, who will find that way to life. In Revelation 20.15, the scriptures say, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If there is a lake of fire, and if there are people who are cast into that lake of fire, well then it's very clear that not everybody gets to heaven. Acts 16.31, the second half of that verse, or or the middle of the verse, I suppose, says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We see conditional statements that there's something that must happen in one's heart before they are placed in the book of life, before they are saved. In Romans 10.9, Paul said, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that he hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So conditioned upon Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, conditioned upon our acceptance of the gift that was purchased on that day, is eternal life. And so it is that though all have the opportunity in Christ to be made alive by the Spirit of God, only those who place their faith and trust in Jesus will receive that gift that Jesus purchased on the cross. While Paul's general statement in 1 Corinthians 15.22 states that all will be made alive, he was not attempting here, and this is important, get this, Paul was not attempting to speak as to the doctrine of salvation here. Paul was not writing 1 Corinthians 15.22 to teach the Corinthian believers about salvation. And this is, this is key. See, we, we, we know that because we, we understand proper methods of biblical interpretation. Paul has already taught them what it means to be saved. Paul has already taught them the gospel. He, he, he told them in verses 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 15 what the gospel was. He knows they know through his teaching that not everyone will get to heaven. So he's not afraid that they're going to misinterpret this. Which means he has the liberty within the understanding of the context that he is writing, he has the liberty to make a a, a definitive contrast here that is very important. And he has the liberty to enhance 
the beauty of the contrast between Adam and Christ because he knows they won't misinterpret what he's saying here. He knows they won't think everybody gets to go to heaven here because he's already made it clear that not everybody is going to heaven. So because Paul knew that the Corinthian church fully understood salvation to be free to all but only given to those who believe, he had no fear of misinterpretation here. This is not a universalist statement. Instead, Paul is teaching not on the doctrine of salvation, but on the doctrine of the resurrection. And it is within this context that Paul desires us to see this parallel. And the fact that he says all shall be made alive makes this parallel incredibly clear. Adam's failure, all die. Christ's victory, all made alive. He's not saying that everyone gets to heaven, but what he's saying is provision has been made. Every man in history, from the greatest to the least, from the worst to the proverbial best, provision has been made for them to be saved. In Adam, every man was given a sin nature, and in Christ, provision was made for every man to overcome his sin nature. This is the parallel, and it's an essential parallel, and that's why Paul stated it the way he did. He stated it that way so that we would see the impact of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, the impact of His resurrection, the power of His resurrection, the, the, the uh, tremendous um, strength, the, the, the tremendous opportunity for all men. But the doctrine of the resurrection isn't just about what Jesus did when He overcame death and secured eternal life, but also when Jesus did it and how it would come about. Paul states in verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Jesus is said to be the firstfruits here of the resurrection. The idea of firstfruits is one that's found throughout the Bible, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, pre-law, during the law, um, in the New Testament, and what it is throughout the ages, typically this word is used to refer to uh, God's desire that his followers would give him the first of their increase as a token of faith and assurance that it was God who gave them what they received and full confidence that God would continue to give them what they needed to live. So the idea of the first fruits was the first portion of everything that we receive or everything that we have or everything that we are, whether it's a child, the first child, or, or um, a harvest or, or a payment, the first of everything that we have. And this idea is carried here into the resurrection, that Jesus was the first human to be resurrected from the dead, get this, specifically into an immortal body. Why must we say it that way? Well, because if I just told you that Jesus was the first man to rise from the dead, if you know your Bible, you'd look at me cross-eyed. Because Jesus was not the first man to rise from the dead. We see... uh, uh, We see resurrections in both the Old and the New Testament. In fact, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, did he not? And of course, that was while Jesus was still on the earth, which means Jesus was not the first person to rise from the dead, but he is and was the first man 
who rose from the dead into an incorruptible and immortal physical body. Every other person who ever rose from the dead died again. They died once. Jesus rose them from the dead. They were still in a mortal body, a mortal physical body, which deteriorated and eventually they died again. Jesus died and He rose again into an immortal physical body which cannot die, which will not die, which does not deteriorate. And because Jesus did, the Scriptures tell us we will as well. This is an essential part of the doctrine of the resurrection, which is that our resurrection will be bodily. It will be physical. It's not just that our spirits will remain with God forever, but we will be given new, immortal, resurrected, physical bodies. And so the next resurrection on the timetable is what we would call the resurrection of the just. And this happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we look at the end times theology, we find that this resurrection is in fact broken up into two distinct events. There is the resurrection of the church, which happens at the rapture, just prior to the seven years of tribulation. And then there is the resurrection of the the martyrs and the Old Testament saints which the book of Daniel teaches us will happen after the seven years of tribulation. These are both lauded into one resurrection as the seven years, the, the, the rapture and um, the second advent are actually all lauded in together into the second coming of Christ. It's not as much a day as it is an event spanning a, a period of time. And this is all the first resurrection not because it is the first, because Jesus has already risen from the dead, but because of who is being resurrected, that being the just. Because all uh, of, of God's believers in every age and in every uh, circumstance will be brought together and resurrected for His kingdom. Now, this being said, there, there will be a second resurrection. And that resurrection is one that nobody wants to be a part of. This one will take place, uh, if you're following our evening series, following the uh, Millennial Kingdom, the thousand years of Christ ruling and reigning on this earth. They will also receive immortal bodies which will spend eternity burning in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 tells us uh, about these concepts. In verse 4 it says, And I saw thrones, John speaking, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The second resurrection is given just a little bit later in the book of Revelation. I'll read to you verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. 
this is the second death. Where there is a second death, there must certainly be a second resurrection. So the fact that there is a second death gives us, and the fact that there was a first resurrection uh, tells us quite clearly that there indeed is a second resurrection. Uh, This resurrection will be unto spiritual death again, that being separation from God for all eternity. We continue, and in verse 24, Paul's focus is not on this this second resurrection. It's on the first resurrection. And um, so he's going to focus in now on the end, um, the, the end of all things, the purpose of the resurrection. He says in verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Jesus will destroy the wicked. This is uh, certainly following the millennial kingdom. Uh, there will be a great amount of destruction prior to the, the thousand-year reign of Christ at the end of the tribulation. However, um, there will, will still not everything will have been destroyed. Not, not everything will have been subdued under Christ. We see that because at the end of the tribulation, the uh, bottomless pit is opened and Satan is able to deceive the nations and there are many unbelievers and they come against Christ. And this is the time that we're talking about now, the end of the millennium. Then cometh the end, he says. Jesus will destroy all the wicked. He will give the kingdom to his Father, having brought to an end every man or every angel that has sought to compete against his authority. In other words, Jesus will win the war and he will present the victorious, righteous remnant to God as a trophy of his victory over man's sin, over death, over hell, and over the wicked one himself, Satan. Verse 25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The plan as the Bible all throughout presents it is that Jesus would reign following the first resurrection we've mentioned for a thousand years, after which the final enemies of Christ will rise against him and those enemies shall be put under his feet. And folks, this is why the thousand year reign of Christ is so important. We're going to talk about this in just a couple weeks as we finish our eschatology uh, on Sunday nights. But what the thousand year reign of Christ will prove beyond a doubt is that even with Jesus physically ruling and reigning with a rod of iron over a group of people upon which the effects of the curse have been removed, in a society in which peace and prosperity are maintained without question, mankind's rebellious heart will still prove rebellious and refuse to submit himself to his creator. See, right now you have lots of people that say if only everybody had enough education, there would be no more war. There'd be no more crime. People just aren't educated enough. If only people had more money. If only people, if, if only there wasn't illness. If only there wasn't, uh, and fill in the blank. Well, Jesus is going to present a thousand year period where there will be no illness, where the effects of the curse will be reversed, where there will be no crime, where there will be no impoverished where He will rule and reign with a rod of iron, where where things will be prosperous. And what we will see is that the sinful heart of man will still rule. The sinful heart of man will still refuse to see God as His Creator, even though God will be there in His presence. And so Jesus will remove the suffering and all of these things, but man will still rebel. 
And at the end of the thousand year reign, all who oppose him, all who rebel against him will be cast down and will be judged. Then as we just read a few moments ago in Revelation 20 verses 13 and 14, that final enemy will be destroyed, the enemy of death. It's the, it's the great enemy, is it not? It's the enemy that came into the world the day Adam sinned. It was the enemy that was created through Adam's rebellion. And Jesus came and His final act, the final victory will be the day that He fully undoes everything that happened in Adam. That's the point. That's why in Adam all died, but in Christ all shall be made alive. That's what he's saying there. That's the that's why the contrast is so important because there's coming a day where Jesus Christ will undo everything that happened in Adam. Death will be defeated. Love will have one. And all of us who have willingly placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ will share in that victory. We'll be a part of that. In other words, because Jesus lives, so too can we. As we finish it with verses 27 and 28, there's, there's a bit of uh, summarization. We, we kind of put all the pieces together in these verses. The first phrase in verse 27 is a quotation from Psalm 8.6. Paul says, For he hath put all things under his feet. That, as it continues in Psalm 8.6, um, that man has been crowned with honor and glory. Clearly, the psalmist, who was David, was considering in the immediate the favor that God has placed upon mankind. However, we also see the prophetic significance of the victory of Jesus Christ, the God-man. The reality that everything in heaven and everything in earth will be made subject to Jesus Christ, who purchased this victory with His own blood on the cross of Calvary, and who secured for those who would believe eternal life with His resurrection. The second half of verse 27 makes a notable exception to this wholesale submission to Christ. It says it was it, uh but excuse me but when he saith all things are put under him it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him a lot of um pronouns there a lot of uh, indefinite pronouns uh looking for antecedents uh, but but we can work it out pretty easily it is manifested that he is accepted which did put all things under him. That the one who put all things under Christ, the one who allowed all things to be submitted to Christ, is accepted, has an exception from the rule of being placed under Christ himself. In other words, if I give my, if, if, if I am I'm a CEO of a company and I give a man complete power over my company, it is well understood that he has complete power with the exception of the CEO. The CEO does not place himself under the power of number two. He gives number two the power of everything else in the company. This is the idea that Pharaoh gave to Joseph when Pharaoh told Joseph that he, that, that he was second in the kingdom that everything was his with the exception of that which was Pharaoh's, that, that, that all authority was his with the exception that, that, that the authority was not above Pharaoh's. The same with Daniel in the kingdom of Babylon. Um, the, 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 the idea of being the number two man. That's the idea with Christ, that all things are put under his feet with the exception of the one who gave it to him, that being God, the Father. 
So then, when all of this is accomplished, when all men and all angels and death itself are conquered by Christ, then we see God, the, the, the finality of God's plan, the reason why He chose Jesus Christ to be the one who would accomplish this. Because then the Son, Jesus Christ Himself, will place Himself under the Father. And so all things under the Father or the Son will then by proxy be under the Father as well. And again, we see lots of pronouns here. But, but look what it says. When all things shall be subdued unto Him, that's Christ, then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him, that's God the Father, that put all things under Him, the Son that God may be all in all. On that day, on that day, when Jesus Christ submits Himself to the Father, places Himself under the Father, and thus everything that's under the Father is under, or under the Son is under the Father, there will be nothing in creation or outside of creation that is not fully subject to the complete will of God the Father. And what this means is that God, however many thousands of years later, will fulfill His intent on the day that all things were created. Before Satan fell to sin, before men fell to sin, God had a universe that was completely submitted to Him. But see, it was a, an untested creation. It wasn't submitted to Him because they wanted to be submitted to Him. It was submitted to him because it was. I mean, it was created, submitted to him. And God desires that those who would worship him would worship him in spirit and in truth. We see that in John 4. That God wants those to worship him who choose to worship him. That God wants those to, to love him who have chosen to love him. Because what is love if it's not a choice? There is no love where there is no choice to love. In fact, our very biblical definition of love is that it is a unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who you love. If you're not making a choice, then you're not ex- you cannot exercise love if you cannot exercise your volition. Because love is always a choice. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross because He, he had to. It's because He loved us enough to choose to. God did not have to redeem mankind. God chose to. And that is love. We know it's love because it is a choice. Study First John and you'll, you'll, you'll see that very clearly taught. Through the death, resurrection, victory, and future submission of Jesus Christ to God the Father, one day all will be as God intends it to be. And no one will have any reason to glory save God alone. And you and I, well, we get to share in that victory for all eternity. God will be all in all. God will have all the glory, but you and I get to share in the victory of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is God's plan. So we've looked at these concepts of the resurrection. Let's look at the big picture together as we apply these truths to our lives. Number one, Christ's willing death and subsequent resurrection secured God's victory over Satan and death. Jesus Christ knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and He said this in Matthew 26, 
In verse 39, he said, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He would go on to say in verse 42, If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Jesus' death was evidence of his complete submission to the will of God. In reward for his complete submission, the Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead, gave him authority over death and hell. This gave Jesus, get this, this gave Jesus the authority to decide who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. Before Jesus, God could not in his justice overlook man's sin. God could not in His justice, therefore, allow men to go to heaven to be in His presence. And God still does not overlook our sin. Simply put, our sin has been paid. John five twenty one. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. John 3.16, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, when Jesus bought for us the, the privilege of eternal life, when he, when he paid our sin debt in his body on the cross, the standard by which we get to heaven was transferred to Jesus and his choice of standards. And he has chosen the standard of belief. So if we would desire to get to God the Father, we can go through the Son. Because the Son paid the debt and now he sets the standard. So Christ's willing death and subsequent resurrection secured God's victory over Satan and death. Number two, those who willingly submit themselves to God's authority will share in his Victory. Just as Jesus willingly gave his life in submission to the will of the Father, which was death, so too, through belief, you and I willingly give our lives in submission to the Son, which is surrender. So the day that you submit yourself to the Son, the way he has asked you to, not only are you submitting yourself to the Son, but because Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Father and you are submitted to the Son, you by proxy are thus submitted to the Father as well. So you have pleased the Father because you have pleased the Son and the Son pleases the Father. You've pleased the Father by proxy. This is kind of a a difficult concept, but if you look on the screen behind me, you can kind of get a picture of of what that is. I I know that those listening on the internet won't be able to to benefit from this. I hope that I, I explained it clear enough. Because we have willingly submitted ourselves to the will of the Son, that is, that you must believe on His name to be saved, and the Son has willingly submitted Himself to the will of the Father, which is complete sinless perfection and Um, bearing his wrath for sin, we, by proxy, are also submitted to the will of the Father so that when God looks at we who are saved, we who have accepted Christ's gift, what he sees in us is that our sin debt is paid and that we have pleased the Son because we believed on his name. And so we are fully aligned with the Son, therefore we are fully aligned with the Father, therefore we are Able, under God's righteous standard, 
to have a relationship with Him. Isn't it beautiful? Christ willingly died and His resurrection secured God's victory over Satan and death. Those who willingly submit themselves to God's authority will share in His victory. Third and finally, because salvation is a choice, therefore all who have come to God through Christ have come by choice. One day when all things are under Christ and thus under God, the whole created order will be willingly submitted to God the Father. And that is His desire. By virtue of our choice to follow the Son, we receive eternal life. Christ will conquer. He will rule. He will conquer again. Satan will be cast down. The unbelieving world will be cast down. Finally, death and hell will be cast down. And on that day, the only thing remaining in the presence of God will be that which has submitted itself to Him by choice. From His Son, Jesus Christ's submission then all those who have willingly submitted themselves to Christ, to the new heaven and new earth, created in complete submission to Him. And on that day, all the created order will love God as He deserves to be loved. For love is always a choice, and all who have ever come to God have done so by choice. And this is the will of God. So as we close this morning, two questions for you. Question number one, have you willingly submitted yourself to the Father through the Son? Will you share in God's victory one day? Simply put, are you a believer? You've heard the gospel all throughout the message this morning. You've heard it the past several weeks as well if you've heard those sermons. You are a sinner. You died in Adam, but then you chose to rebel against God. Sin is anything that you say, do, or think that is uh, contrary to God's word, to God's will, to God's character. And so we have all sinned, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64 tells us that there's no good thing we can do to get us to heaven because, because our sin, uh, the, the, the reality of good things does not negate the reality of bad things. The fact that we might do some things that we would define as morally good doesn't negate the fact that we have done things that are wrong in God's eyes and someone has to pay for them. But you've learned today that Jesus Christ paid for them, that Jesus Christ took your punishment, that Jesus Christ paid for your sins so that God's righteous standard was now pacified. God's wrath was pacified. And he says, okay, Jesus, because you paid the debt for every man, woman, and child who would ever live, past, present, and future, now you get to choose how they get to heaven. You get to choose how they can please you. You have pleased me, now you choose how they can please you. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is like God. He is God, by the way. So he says, I'm going to make the standard belief on my name. What does it mean to believe? It doesn't just mean that you believe Jesus existed. It means you align yourself with His message. You align yourself with His death. You willingly submit yourself to Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. You accept the free gift of salvation. And on the day that you do so, on the authority of Scriptures, the Bible tells us that you will be born again, that old things will pass away, that all things will become new, that you will become a child of God because you have been accepted by Christ who was accepted by the Father. Have you done that today? If you have not, would you make today the day? 
Would you there in the silence, uh, silently there in your seat right now, tell God, tell, tell God that you accept the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, that you believe? Perhaps you're sitting there today and you say, Pastor, I just don't quite understand yet. I don't get it. Um, I'm not quite on the same page or, or I need more information. Would you come see me? I'll open a Bible and I'll show you how you can have uh, a full understanding of these things by God's grace. One more question. We're going to come back to this in depth next week, but let me ask you, those of you who are believers, are you living in the victory that was purchased for you on the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead? We know that we will be immortal one day. We will receive resurrected bodies. But until that day, the Scriptures tell us that we have the privilege today to live in that victory. Uh, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection didn't just give you victory over your sin nature uh, one day. He gave you victory over sin today. He unplugged you from the power of sin. You are no longer shackled to your sin. You are free. You are free to be led by the Holy Spirit of God into righteousness. You are free to do what is right. You are free to please God in your flesh, your your mortal, dying flesh, that flesh that still has a sin nature. Even as a believer, you're still going to have a sin nature. You just don't have to listen to it anymore. But what an incredible thing that you, this, this mortal man with a sin nature, can please God. But Romans tells us that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It is only as we live through the power of the Holy Spirit which indwells us at the moment of salvation. But are you doing it? Or are you taking this tremendous gift, this tremendous privilege, this, this awesome power that you've been given through Christ and, and as we submit ourselves to His Spirit, are you just ignoring it? Are you living in the flesh in spite of the power that you have to live in the Spirit? Let it not be so. Next week we will consider the fullest implications of that thought as Paul continues to teach us. But there's certainly a great deal to think about today. What a blessing it is that God has given us such clear um, teaching on the power of the resurrection. Now we, we know why it's important and we know what it is. Let's take this knowledge with us. Let's allow it to, to touch our lives, to, to give us an understanding, but also to give us a motivation. That's what we'll talk about next week for the way that we live our lives. Let's pray together.